Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Adair Daufenbach, who is an LA-based, Brazil-bred musician, songwriter, producer, and engineer. As a lifelong performer turned producer, Adair had the opportunity to work with some of the greats, both inside and outside of Brazil, including Tony McAlpine, Kiko Loreiro, Angra, Dirk Verburen, who's the drummer of Megadeth, and many, many others. For those of you who are curious about how to get a career going in a market that is no market and transitioning to the biggest market in the world, this episode is for you. Enjoy. Adair Daufenbach, welcome to the URM podcast. Hello, y'all. It's a pleasure being here. Super excited. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Glad to have you here. Thank you very much. How are you doing? How's LA right now? Slowly going back to normal. It's better to live here now because like a couple months ago, it was terrible. I've been working a lot. I'm always working a lot. I'm really grateful for that, you know, and slowly recording drums again, recording bands again. It's cool. It's getting better, you know, getting a lot better. And I guess that we're asking from all all points of view, right? Like not only the, the professional side, but also the pandemic side, right? <laughs> I imagine. Yes. Yeah. So everything is going, going back to normal slowly, but it's cool, man. I'm happy. When you say that you're starting to record drums again, did you do zero drum sessions for that entire year? That was something that happened naturally. As soon as the pandemic started, just happened. Like almost nobody was calling you to record drums. And I used to record drums a lot with Dirk, with Achilles Priester. As soon as the pandemic started, we had like zero recordings. You know, We did like one or two recordings in the middle of the pandemic. But for example, with Dirk, we were in the very beginning when we were super afraid of the virus and we didn't know exactly what it was. Uh, I remember that Dirk was like, okay, I'm going to, I go to my room and I'm going to record from there and we will not talk to each other. We will just talk, you know, through the mic and watching ourselves in the, in the camera system, you know, that I have to record drums, you know. 
So naturally happened, like I didn't have many drum recordings or any kind of recordings, you know. In the last two or three months, things started again. People start, started asking me again to record, to produce and all that stuff, you know. I'm happy. <laughs> but you've been working the whole time. Yeah, I've been working the whole time, mostly with mixing, you know, and remote stuff, just like everybody, you know, like uh, producing at distance, like remotely, getting files. I, I even recorded one band here in my apartment in the middle of the pandemic, like, but we were super careful, like with tests and everything. A Brazilian band, Claustrophobia, they, they live in Las Vegas. I can't stop, like, and I had some personal problems. You know, if I, if I wasn't working, I would get crazy. I have to say, I would, for me, it was a rough year last year. You know, some really bad personal stuff happened. <laughs> so even when there's no bad personal stuff happening, how long can you go without working before you go crazy? One day or two, seriously. Do you have that? I know that you are making questions, but I also love your work and I, I would like to ask oh, you as well. It's like, because for me, I, every time I'm not working, I have the feeling that I'm doing something wrong. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> it's like if I take like, okay, I worked like 15 days in a row, like nonstop. And now I have the right to just stay here, watching movies, going out and, you know, uh, having fun. After four hours, I start like, man, I should be working. You know? <laughs> it's, not, it's not right, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So I force myself to stop, which is something that I've only been able to do maybe in the past year. It took me up until the past year to be able to learn how to stop. Still, if I go longer than a day, I start to feel guilty. Two days maximum. I actually took a vacation at the end of 2019 for about five or six days, wow. which was super extreme. <laughs> But yeah, I can't go for too long because there's just too much to do. And the thing is, I think uh, when you're in business for yourself or you run a company, if you stop working, I mean, you know exactly what's not getting done. Yeah. URM can keep moving without me there, but that doesn't mean that I should stop because there's a bunch of things that I have to do in order to keep us moving forward. And so there's only so long that I can go without working before I start to feel like a piece of shit. <laughs> it's good to say that for the people who are starting now in this job and they, they're willing to be producers or engineers or mixers or whatever, because we kind of, we, we don't have the right to stop. You know, I feel like that because this market, we are all, it all depends on us, you know. It's all about us, you know. Like if if you make a mistake and you make a terrible job, you you have consequences, you know. So the same when you stop. Like if you stay for too long out of the business, you never know if exactly when you decide in that week when you decided to take a vacation in Hawaii or something. Exactly on that week, you'll be Metallica. We'll call you to make the record, you know. <laughs> you never know, you know. It's like, or well, not Metallica, not not yet. But I mean, uh, I'd come back from Hawaii for that. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. let's suppose I, I would come back from from hell to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true. Um, the business doesn't stop just because you did, and I've known plenty of people who decide to take a break and then try to come back a few years later 
and all their momentum is gone. Some of them are able to restart the momentum and others aren't. I kind of had the same, like two or three years after I arrived here in LA, like I moved to LA, I wasn't like that excited, even though everything was super fast for me here in LA when I moved from Brazil and all of that. But there was a moment that I wasn't that happy, let's say. But uh, somehow still I was I was working, you know, I was I was lucky enough not to take the decision of like, okay, I'm going to stop for a year or six months, you know, but I know the feeling. <laughs> so that's a good decision. Yeah, man. I never stopped. Like, but there was a moment it's because it's so exhausting, you know, sometimes because the market, the way it is right now, you don't have the right to choose what you have to do or not. Like, for example, all the opportunities, the big opportunities I had in my life, they happened and you cannot say like, for example, Kiko called me and said, hey, I want to record the next, my next record with you. Kiko is my hero, you know. I was super excited and everything, but let's suppose that I wasn't. How can I say to Kiko, like, no, wait a minute. Can you wait a month until I get ready? It's like, I can't. You know, like when, when, when such an opportunity comes to you, there's nothing you can do. You know, you, you just have to do it. You know, you have to be prepared all, all the time, you know. So that's it. <laughs> you know, I think that the ideal... I was actually just talking about this with somebody. I think the ideal is to get to a point eventually where you can say no to projects. But in order to get to that point where you can pick what you're working with, that's like the that's like the final dream almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And like I already said no to a bunch of jobs, of course, or to a bunch of jobs. That's too horrible to say. Like I already said no to a few jobs. You know, there were some bands that that they were looking for my work and they wanted to work with me, not in the right moment. And of course I already said no, but when the opportunity comes to you, like stuff that you want to do, you know, you don't have the choice. If some of the bands that I want to work with someday, they call me or I have the opportunity to work with them. Like doesn't matter what is happening in my life. I just have to go and do it, you know? So the very best, as you said before, the very best you can have is the situation where you can choose, but probably you cannot choose too much, right? <laughs> there's a limit. No, there's definitely a limit. I mean, how do you feel about that? That I agree that that is the reality of it. I think you, I think you kind of have to just accept it. Yeah, be comfortable with it. But uh, so you're cool with it. I understood really soon in this career that this life of a music producer. And working with music, it's a life of sacrifices. And you are happy every day because you're working with the stuff that you love, you know. But sometimes you just work too much. I remember that I was in Brazil and I worked like 50 days in a row, like nonstop. Sometimes I, I think that I already did more than that. But I, I remember that one day, one, one year, I worked like 50 days nonstop, you know. I was tired, of course, but at the same time, I was super happy because I was having work, a lot of work. And especially for me who came from Brazil, you know, in Brazil, it's really hard to make a living out of metal, producing metal music in Brazil. It's really tough, you know, because you don't have as many metal bands, at least well succeed metal bands in order to, to pay and to have a really good production in their albums and all of that. So I was lucky because I was working only with music production and recording metal bands in Brazil, you know? And I did that for at least seven years, you know? So I was exhausted, but at the same time, I was always remembering myself, like, no, you are tired, that's fine. But 
you were a lucky guy, you know, that's an amazing life, you know. And that's the moment I am right now, you know. Every time I, I remember, I keep remembering myself. I'm, I'm always like, man, this is the life that a lot of people would like to have, you know. This is a, it's a blast doing what you do, you know. So it doesn't matter. Sometimes you have bad moments when you have to work too much. But working with music, it's a blast. Like every day I wake up and I'm, I'm really happy because, oh, okay. What, what do I have to do? Oh, I have to go to the studio record drums with Dirk. Like, oh, what a, what a, what a shitty life, right? No, it's, <laughs> it's a blast, you know, like. <laughs> so in a place like Brazil where there isn't the same kind of market and bands don't have the same kind of money, how do you go about building a career in a niche like this where to the point where you can make a living off of it? Um, I'm wondering, because we do have a lot of listeners in, you know, in non-major music markets in third world countries that want to do it and they don't want to move. They don't want to go to LA or do that. They want to figure out how to do it in, in their part of the world, which I think is Close to impossible, but not 100% impossible. Someone does it. You did it. Uh -huh. I know the feeling of a guy who's right now in Africa or countries that you know for sure that there's not too many bands. In Brazil, it's still like a really good place for metal because we have like Sepultura, Angra, like we have Crisian, we have a bunch of amazing bands there. But it's still super tough, you know. What I did was like, I made it happen. First of all, I had to work really hard in order to have competitive work. And I had to make a lot of sacrifices, stuff that you guys here in America, you guys are not used to that. And let me see, let me explain what, what exactly I'm talking about. I remember that one day, because for example, one, one of the most difficult things for a music producer is the schedule. Because when you start working with a studio, you have to deal with the fact that most of the bands, like 100% of the bands that you, we will work with, they're not professional. So basically, they will be available for you to work only Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. At least in Brazil, it's yeah. mostly like that, right? No, that's it's like that here too. I mean, when you work with local bands, they have normal jobs. No, no. I mean, like, I know that th that's the part that is exactly like here in the US, but that then comes the part that is not exactly like that, you know? Then the difference. Yeah. Then the difference. It's like... I remember that there was a guy and it's really important for a producer to keep busy all the time just so you can keep money money getting in, you know, money in so you can pay your bills, so you can invest in new equipment and you can evolve, you know, and you can be a professional, like professional in the sense of the guy who only does that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember that there was this guy and it, it would be super important for me to keep me busy and to keep my working all the time to record the guitars of a certain album in 2006, it would be important to record the guitars on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And the guy lived like 40 miles away from me. And he was like, man, I'm available, but the problem is that the only bus I have, because he didn't have a car, the only bus I have to come here and start working with you at 8 a.m., which was the time that I suggested them, like, hey guys, let's work from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m., just so we can get the job done. It was, it was six songs, you know? And he was like, yeah, but the only bus that comes from my city to your city uh, leaves at 1 p.m. And was like, man, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose like five hours of work, you know? So I was like, okay, I'm going to pick you up, you know? So I wake up 6 a.m. I pick him like at 7 a.m. And at 8 a.m. I was in my studio recording with, with him, you know, just so I could keep my 
my schedule, you know, I was like, okay, now I'm busy, you know. I already did some stuff like that, like other stuff, like bands. They only could record enough certain weekends. And I recorded like 15 hours in a Friday, 15 hours in a Saturday. Like I barely slept, like I didn't sleep at all, you know. I remember, you know, recording with Achilles that we had to finish his, to finish all the bass. But that's, that's something, of course, that, that part, it's something that happens to everybody. We had to finish all the basses and we recorded like 24 hours straight. Like That does happen. <laughs> that does happen to everybody. But I mean, like in Brazil stuff, because those are the difficulties that happens because of the country. Everything is tough for everybody. You know, it's, it's hard to find someone who's like 18 years old that has access to a car for example, here in LA, I see that a bunch of young guys, they have like a Honda Civic, 95 Honda Civic, when they become like 21 or 22, you know. It's easier to get that than in Brazil, you know. Well, it just seems like the overall economic situation for people is a lot harder yeah. down there. Yeah, it's a lot. So the people have to make... I guess, very careful decisions about what they're going to spend their money on, the little money that they do have, and it doesn't always involve a car. It's a lot of things, uh, not only like having a car, but for example, equipment. It was also a struggle because, especially in 2005, 2006, when I started, we didn't have as many good plugins. Of course, we had already a, a, a bunch of good plugins, but let's suppose uh, amp simulators, it wasn't that easy to find really, really good amp simulators at that time. We had those PODs or VAMP. And I always, in order to be competitive, I, I, I noticed, well, I, I need to have an amp, you know. And man, if I wanted to have like a, a 5150 at that time, oh my God, it, it, it's so much money in Brazil, you know, so much money. And it's a lot of effort. You have to work really hard. You have to finance stuff. In Brazil, it's mostly of the stuff are all like that, you know. It's really hard. But at the same time, that prepared me for the future, you know, because I was so used to difficulties. When I moved to, the, to LA, I was like, okay, certain things here are easier. Okay, the market is a lot more competitive. But anyway, for the structure of my studio, like buying equipment and all the stuff, it's a lot better than in Brazil, you know. Well, the, the market is a lot more competitive, but if you're used to working hard enough to make it work in a an impossible market, then I think competitive is easier than impossible. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's like, this is one of the things that I noticed, which me that comes to my mind, like the word, like you have to be consistent, you know, because sometimes you're trying to improve your workflow, but sometimes all you have to do is to be consistent. I don't know if you, if you understand what, I'm, what I mean, like, because in my case, I felt that I was stuck in a place with my work. Like, I was like, man, I actually have to improve and I have to... Get like a plateau with the quality of your work? Yeah, yeah. I was like, man, because I, I, I think that I always have to evolve. And I don't want to sound the same year after mm -hmm. year. No, I want to change always. I want to keep listening to whatever is happening in the market. I want to be always evolving, you know. It's a quest for tones, you know. Like, that's my life, you know, and for tones and for sounds and for mixing, for albums, I want to be better. But sometimes you feel like, oh, my God, I'm stuck. And maybe you even feel that, oh, there is not too many people looking for my work right now. I was, I was always busy, so super busy. 
But sometimes you feel that, okay, I'm not having as many emails that I used to have. And then you think, well, maybe I'm done. It's over. It's over. It's going to be the end. You know? yeah. <laughs> and suddenly you never worked with the guy and the most important artist of your life is going to call you and say, hey, we want to record with you or we want to produce the next album with you or mix with you. It's because of consistency, because I was there. Everybody knew I was there. I'm prepared for everything because despite the fact that I was, it was just a feeling, it, was, it wasn't real, but I was having that feeling. Looks like you were stuck, but you were there. You were prepared, you know, you were available, you know. And I'm saying that because I already saw a lot of producers that they sometimes they, they just get lost. Just like you said, people who wanted to take a break of one year or two years. And when you do that means like you were telling everybody, I'm not here, you know, and the market doesn't stop. So basically when you were there and people know that you were always there doing that, that's enough sometimes. I'm not telling people like, just keep being, uh, <laughs> don't try to evolve and just keep doing that's going to work. I'm just saying the opposite. Like if you are good and you are not there available, like being consistent. Well, it doesn't matter if you're good, if you're not consistent or reliable. Um, it sounds to me like uh, there's a lot of flakes in production and in music. And I think just the ability to show up repeatedly and deliver time after time, year after year, basically, sets you apart. And of course, you need to keep on getting better because if you consistently sound the way you did 10 years ago, people are going to move on. But I think that one of the things that scares people away immediately about producers or mixers is when they're inconsistent with their results. Like one time they'll work with them and it'll be amazing and on time and a great experience. And then the next time, Everything will be totally late and they'll be acting like a maniac. And then the next time it'll be great. And then the next time it'll be great. And then the next time it'll be a fucking lunatic. And then he'll disappear for three months. And then you hear about like six different projects that never got their files. But then six different projects that did get their files. Yeah. And you don't know what to think. And I've heard about that with people who are really good too. So it kind of doesn't matter how good you are if you're inconsistent. At this point in my life, this is one of the big revelations I had from this job. You know, I was like, I see some other producers, they just don't evolve. They, they're not getting better jobs. They keep stuck just because of that. You know, sometimes I hear from other people who works with them, they see, ah, because we love the, the guy. He's really good. We love his work, but he's, he's, he's inconsistent because not inconsistent. He is not available or we already worked with him and we didn't feel comfortable while we were in the studio with him. I already got some jobs that the guys were like, uh, we are looking for your work because mostly because we know that you are professional, you know, because you like, you keep the schedule and you deliver the files. And uh, as you said before, you were responsible, you know, and sometimes it sounds for someone who's, a re who's really critical about everything, maybe sounds too little. Think about only the... You, what I mean is like, you never hire a producer just because he's responsible. You want a good job. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like them doing a good job is assumed, right? You're not going to hire a producer if they suck. So the fact that they're good at production and mixing, you're not even going to be in the conversation if you're not good at it. No, no. Yeah, I mean... It's just that 
for example, nobody's going to hire someone just because he's responsible. But I mean, in certain moments in my life, people chose me because between the factors was like, he's more professional than the other guy, you know? Yep. So I'm just saying that it's like, we are, he's more reliable, you know? Like there's a bunch of guys that they do an amazing work that, and then uh, some, because you probably had this situation, like someone who recorded an amazing album and you say, my God, this is an amazing album. Like it's, it's incredible. And then the guys come to you and say, hey, we want to work with you. And you don't understand. It's like, why are you guys trying to change the producer for the next record if the last record sounds just insanely amazing? Maybe they will never tell you, but it's just because they're not comfortable. They're not feeling comfortable with the previous producer. And that's a really good tip, let's say, like something really important about the, the life in the studio, which is you have to care always with the music that comes from the band and uh, the, their music, you know, as if, because their music, it's their son, it's their kids, you know, like it's the most important thing for them, you know, and you have to care about that. Like if they see that you don't care, they will leave, you know. And second thing is, is that you have to be, you have to keep the, the, the studio environment. I always think about that. Like you have to keep the studio environment a nice workflow. I know that there is a lot of stories of crazy producers that they just, and the, those albums, they happened, like the, the stories between Ramones and, uh, and, and their few Spectre, right? That's the name of the, the producer. Yeah. These crazy stories, like they made an amazing, amazing albums. Okay, it worked, but I think mostly... <laughs> That's rare. Yeah, yeah, it's rare, right? Like mostly, if yeah. you can keep the, the vibe, the studio really nice, like laughing all the time, like such a... Uh, keeping the good energy... Uh, that's also important, you know, people will look for your services because of that as well. Not only because it basically everything I said is, is just that it's not only about the sound, you know, everything you do backstage and the, how you deal with the process, all of that matters a lot, you know, sometimes even more than the sound, you know. Well, I know that there's quite a few bands who have had their biggest record of their entire career with a producer who then don't go back. And if all they cared about was the success of the album, then of course they'd go back yeah. if that was the only reason. But fact is, I know of some stories that I'm not, I can't say on the on here, but <laughs> I know some stories of uh, bands literally going platinum or multi-platinum with a producer having a ridiculous amount of success and then never going back to that person wow. and hating that person. Yeah. And it's crazy because if you think it's only the way it sounds, you're wrong. It's so much more than that because they had a bad experience. They had a bad time. They didn't like the way the producer treated them. They didn't like the way the producer approached their music. They just didn't like it, had a bad, bad experience, and doesn't matter how many records it sold, and it doesn't matter how good it sounded. They didn't go back. And so if that's true on huge records, it's definitely true on small records. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Basically, man, I, I've heard like a, a million stories about, I was, I'm, I'm working with the band in the studio, and they, they're telling me, man, we really liked the work of the guy, the previous guy that we worked with, you know, but it was unbearable because he would leave in the middle of the session for two hours, three hours, leaving us there waiting and stuff like that, you know. So we didn't feel respected, you know. <laughs> Man, I've heard that story so many times. So basically, 
it's all about consistency, you know. If you're there and you care about the band and about their music and about everything, they will feel that. Talking only about the psychological aspect of the, of the things, you know, like somehow the the band knows if you care about their music. Sooner or later, they will they will find find it out, you know, like they will okay. He he he's here only for the money. He doesn't care, you know. That's one of the things that I always I was really careful, you know. Every time I'm mixing, doesn't matter which band, which artist I'm working with. If it is a big artist or if it is a a small artist, I'm always I don't know why or how, but I'm I'm always afraid, like real fear, you know, when I'm mixing a job, like when I'm about to to deliver a song. The moment when I'm, when I'm about to click like send, I'm always like, is it actually good enough? You know, and then I, I always come back and listen again, you know, and I already changed like the entire mix just because before I hit send, I was like, man, let me listen again, you know, and doesn't matter who, how big is the artist or how, or how small, you know, because I don't know if you, I, I think it's important I know that fear, it's a word that people doesn't like very much or it's not appreciated. You cannot be afraid of doing your job, you know. You just have to do it. And everybody's like, you have to, it's, it's some kind of, you have to be brave, you know. You have to feel that fear, but uh, you have to keep going. Do the job anyways. Yeah, and that's the, the most important thing. Like, even though you are being, what I mean is like, if you're afraid, like, my God, I'm not sure if this is the very best or if they are going to approve or whatever. That's good because you care, you know. Then you're going to listen to it again and then you probably will try to hear from the guys. every Because that's what I think. Like every time I, I, I never, I try at least <laughs> to never be like the guy who knows everything. You know, like I'm always like, in the end, it's you trying to make the band happy. You have to be always aware of that. It's like. The guys need to be happy and it's their job. It's going to be you. It's your job as well. But in the end, it's their music, you know. You know, the thing with the fear aspect is if you try to pretend like you don't feel it or that you shouldn't feel it, that doesn't change that you're going to feel it. Yeah. It's a very natural human emotion to feel unless you're a psychopath yeah. <laughs> who can't feel it. It's a very normal thing to feel and it's okay. It's there for a reason. It's there to protect you. The thing though is when people let it stop them, that's the problem. The real problem is uh, if people don't send the file because they're scared or if they just put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off some more and then that becomes their pattern and people start to recognize that they're always late with their projects. I know of a lot of mixers who were always late because they were afraid to send stuff so they'd come up with excuses not to do it and I think it's a very common thing what you're saying to think is it good enough and then get scared about it and then remix it. Everyone does that I think but the difference is some people don't know when to stop and just say, fuck it. <laughs> it is what it is. They're going to love it or hate it. I think that you become a professional in the moment that you know the in-between. The, 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 when, you, when you learn how to balance those two feelings. like Because you have to get your stuff done. You have to deliver. you know, Because professionals, they get things done, right? That's the thing, you know? The, you hire a professional because he's going to do it. But at the same time, what, I've, what I was trying to say 
with my crazy mind and with my bad English, it's that fear is not bad. You know, if you feel like if you are afraid sometimes of doing things, that's because you care. Because I also know about people, producers, that they just do it, whatever, you know, because they are not afraid. They don't care if the band, the band doesn't, will not like it, you know. And you have to control that feeling, in my opinion. Like, you have to find the in-between. Like, you cannot be afraid to the point that you don't send it. You have to be a little bit afraid just as some kind of respect for the band. Like, because I care. I will be really sad if you guys don't like it, you know. I think it's an important feeling. I have that feeling, you know. I was... I was already super disappointed sometimes when you send it and the guy said, ah, that's not what we're looking for. You know, we should try a totally different way of mixing the whole thing, you know. And, but anyway, again, I was disappointed, but you have to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to try it again. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, you know. That's how real life <laughs> uh, is, you know. I mean, speaking of fear, it must have been scary to come here. Oh, man. Sometimes I think if I could go back in time and tell my 35 years version, like, hey, man, it's going to be like this, 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 and this, and that. Moving to the, to the U.S. is going to be like this. I would probably not go. <laughs> it was, it, it's scary, you know, it's super tough. It's super difficult, you know, like the, the whole process with the visa, the English, you know, because I thought I, I knew how to speak English. When once I get here, I was like, well... I'm not sounding that great yet, <laughs> <laughs> but it was tough, man. It was, it's super tough, you know. How did you go about establishing yourself when you got here? Because you established yourself pretty fast. It was all about the momentum. What happened was that in 2014, I, I had the amazing opportunity of mixing the Tony McAlpine album. I was doing the job in Brazil. I was still living there. And in the NAM of 2015, I came to the NAM show and I met him personally, and I even mixed one of uh, one of his songs for the for the album. The last song we did it together in a studio, the studio in the back of the house of Vai. That was a, imagine for <laughs> me, like I, I'm, a, I'm a guitar player. I, it's a pretty cool trip man, to uh, man, the U.S. I was in the NAM show yeah. with Tony McAlpin, hanging out with him and Michael Masker, his manager at the time. Amazing guys, you know, and I was a Tony McAlpin fan. And uh, those were my very best, the very best days of my life for sure. And then I, right after the NAM show, I went to the studio. It wasn't C Vi studio, but it's it's a studio that he has in the back that uh, is run by Greg Verth, super nice guy, super amazing guy with an incredible story, uh, amazing career. And I was there mixing a song with Tony McAlpin, you know. And then I was like, man. And he was really happy with my my work, you know. Uh, I, even though I was like always doubting myself, I was like, man, is it real? Like, is he really liking it? Because he was super excited with the the mixing and everything. But now I believe him because we did three, we we already did two albums in a row, and we are working on you know, the there's third. the proof. Yeah, so probably he actually likes it. <laughs> I say that all the time for him. You think? Yeah, I, I said allegedly. Yeah, he allegedly likes it. <laughs> I always say, I always say to him, like, man, sometimes you say stuff for me that I, I, it's hard to believe because I'm a really big fan of you. And he was, yeah, I like, I love your job and everything. I was like, man, well, if he's recording the third album, if we're still recording, working together after three albums, probably he likes it. So anyway, so basically, I was there 
January of 2015, NAMM show, mixing a song with Tony. And after the NAMM show, I also, during the NAMM show, I talked to a, a band and from San Francisco and I mixed their album as well. And I was like, man, if I want to go to LA, that's the moment. You know, I have a connection there. For anyone who wants to move to the US and want to get a artist visa, it's really important to have a career, a really strong background if you want to apply for those visas and stuff. You know, it's a really good advice for people abroad to know that. You know, and I was like, man, I already did some cool stuff in Brazil. I'm pretty sure I can. I went to the lawyer, so it was all about the momentum. I was here for 15 days in in the US, and then I decided, okay, I'm, and I went to a immigration lawyer. I discussed with him, like, okay, how does it work this thing of going to the US, like? And he told me, I thought, well, I can, it's possible. And then I was like, I'm going to move, you know, doesn't matter. And I was, in my life in Brazil at that time, it was amazing. You know, I was in heaven. I have to say, in 2015, I recorded bands because I was living in Sao Paulo, but I was recording bands all over Brazil, like people from the South, from the extreme North, extreme South. I even remember that I was... Recording a band in Santa Catarina, my my state. I went to the Rock in Rio to mix Project 46 and John Wayne live. And right after I finished the Rock in Rio, the day after, I traveled to northeast of Brazil, Fortaleza, to record a band, super nice band called Jack the Joker. I love those guys. So my life, and I, I still remember the feeling. I was like in Santa Catarina, I was watching Rock in Rio. And I was like, well, man, in two days, I'll be there mixing for the broadcast, for the TV. And then I'm going to go right after the Rock and Rio. I'm going to go to the Northeast and record a band. And then I went back to Sao Paulo and I was recording a band from another city. I, I was like, man, that's life. You know, it's it's super tough to 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 do stuff like that, to be uh, recording so many people and do so many special things. But still, I was like, man, my dream was to live in LA and have a studio here. So if you, if you ask me, like, what is your dream? My dream is what I do now. It's like one day I was having mm -hmm. this conversation with a few friends. They're like, so what is your biggest dream? What, what do you dream about? And, I was, and they were like, oh, I would like to go to a certain place or whatever. What about you, Adari? And I was like, man, my dream was to be live in LA and have a studio. That's my dream, you know. And here I am doing that, you know. So basically I did it because of the momentum. I was like, if if there is a moment, is there is if if there is a moment where I can actually move to LA, it's now. I'm recording with Tony McAlpin, uh mixing his album. I already I was also working a lot with Achilles. I still work a lot a lot with Achilles. And I knew he was moving to LA as well. I was like, man, I, I will have work, you know. And at that point, 2015. I already started to mix a lot more. So it was when I moved to the US, I had a lot of million mixing from Brazil, you know, that I could do remotely. So I was, of course, I spent like the entire year of 2015 preparing myself for that. So I was scheduling a lot of mixing and stuff, even if I didn't have any work. So you didn't just move. You had a ton of momentum and opportunity happening at the same time, which I think that that's key. I mean, I have known people who have moved to LA with zero momentum and zero connections and still managed to make it work. Wow. But that's super rare though. For the most part, the people I know who have gone to LA and made it work 
went there once they already had the momentum going. They figured out a way to get the momentum going, and then at the right moment, they capitalized on it by putting themselves in a better environment, like L.A. Um, those are the people I know who, if you just want to talk about the majority of people I know who have succeeded moving to L.A., it's been in that type of situation. It's much easier when you already have momentum and know people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's going to be hard either way, but it's going to be a little easier if you already know people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, man, I was like, that's one of the good things about Brazil, you know, because I always thought like, man, if I if I made it in Brazil, a country that has no metal at all, if I work really hard, pay attention to details, you know, why is this thing not going to work, you know, I, I believe that. I, I always believe that. I always believe that if you're a nice guy, if you do your job, if you care, that's the word, you know, if you care, you know, because whatever person you work with, they have to see in your eyes that you care. And that's important, you know, sometimes more than the sound, you know, because if they feel like, man, we are working with this guy and looks like, sounds like he's He's another member of the band, you know. That's something that I always did, you know. That I'm I'm really passionate of what I do, you know. I'm really passionate. And people feel that. So I was like, I trusted my my instincts. I was like, man, it's gonna work. It's gonna happen, you know. <laughs> do you have the ability to make yourself care about bands that you may not like very much? Yes. Yeah, I was able to do that to a degree. There's always a limit, though, of course. Of course. But I found that with lots of bands that I worked on, I wouldn't listen to them in real life. <laughs> but when we were working, I became a fan of theirs. I know exactly what we're talking about. I already had that feeling, especially because I was in Brazil. Imagine, like in Brazil, we don't have as many, we don't have a high number of metal producers in Brazil. We have no more than four guys in Brazil right now. Now we have more, but back in 2015, 2014, when I was there, there was no more than four guys that were professionally working with that. And when a certain bands, they were looking for my work because, man, it's like, we want to do this job that's like muse-ish or some rock-ish. And I know that we, we know that you work mostly with metal, but in the end, you were the person that probably here in Brazil, you are the only one who will understand our, our music because it's close at least, you know, because there is guitars, there is drums, we want real drums and all of that, you know, you know what I mean? Like, and mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And that's something that, man, I'm so emotional about those things, you know, because when the band comes to my studio and they, even, even though I know that their music, it's not exactly my style, but I know in their eyes, I can see that they really want to work with me. That's something that always changed my my mind. I was like, man, I have to do it, you know, the, because the guys they actually like my work, they respect me as a as a music producer, and they are happy for being here. When they get in the studio, they were like, man, we are so happy that we are here with you and all of that. And I'm always like, oh man, okay, I'm gonna do it because I I've, it's it's it it has to be uh, the reciprocity. Is that the right word? Yes, the reciprocity. It's already there. It's like the guys want to work with you. They respect you, you know. 
And it's not, and I always think, okay, it's not that far, okay? You just have to listen to a couple of bands that they like and you have to listen to their stuff a little bit more. And I, was, I, was, and I try. So in Brazil, it's really common to have that because since you have just few rock metal producers, it's more likely for a Brazilian producer who works in this world of metal, rock and roll with <laughs> distorted guitars in general, it's more likely for a Brazilian guy to work with a bunch of different styles, you know? Yeah, because where else are they going to go? Yeah, so it's a, you don't have options, you know? They they either go to the U.S. and record with the producer They that it's a big reference for them, but it's always the currency, the difference in the currency, it's always unbelievable. So it's basically impossible. And it's pretty likely to have a Brazilian guy trying to do million different styles. And that's, that happened to me. I already had all kinds of references for my work. And I was always trying to respect the band and going after that style, you know, even though sometimes it wasn't actually my style, you know. So, but but that, that was really good. I learned a lot. You know, I remember that there are moments in our career, right? There are moments where we are just mixing drums with samples, like 100% on everything. There are moments that you are just like, fuck it, I'm going to use only the natural sound. Sometimes you mix it. And I remember that I was in the middle of a process like that. I was like, man, I don't want to use sample anymore, blah, blah, blah. And then comes a band that just asks you to do like almost like electronic music with metal or with rock and roll. And then you have to to evolve and you have to do your very best trying to understand what the band wants, you know. And you learn, you know, and you get, it's a, a really rich experience when you, you have to do that. And you know? also I feel really fortunate when, those situation happens, you know. What is it that you listen for when you're trying to understand a style of music that's not your own? Like, say someone comes in with a pop punk band or something and you don't listen to pop punk, what are the kinds of things that you're going to study in order to better understand what they do? Usually the music structure is something really important for me. I always think like, okay, how this band or this style happens, like... Does the chorus happens really early in the song or later? What they used to do, like they do like intro, verse, bridge and chorus, or they have some weird structure. Like, for example, I remember when I started to work with death metal bands and really heavy bands. <laughs> yeah, death metal and their structures. It's kind of funny. It's like, what do you mean it's structure? There's no structure. It's like... <laughs> it's just riffs. The song is not like intro, A, B, C, A, B, C, D. No, it's like A, B, C, D, A, F, G, H. It's like different parts, just a bucket of different parts all over the, 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 the throughout the, the entire song, you know? So structure is really important. And of course, drums. I always pay attention, like how the drums sound, like... From the tuning the guys used to do, from the size of the, the, the cymbals, and especially the mixing, is everything super compressed or not? Uh, what kind of amps they use like for the guitars? Like if you, if you feel that it's like Marshall-ish with G1275s or with V30s, you know, I try to pay attention to the to this aesthetic of the whole thing in general. You know, uh, the sound sound wise and structure wise. I think that's the most important thing. You know, and of course, a little bit of the the message of the band. That I think that's I don't I don't I don't see here 
many people talking about that. Like sometimes you want to, the band use a certain band as a reference that has a super positive <laughs> message and they're mm -hmm. super down. Like, oh man, I don't think the message you were trying to say in this song or in your band actually fits the other band because that's a happy band and your band is a super sad band. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's also something that I take into, into consideration. I feel like if, if you understand their aesthetic, you understand their structure and you understand their message, that's, that's a lot right there. Yeah, right. It's, it's, and also I was, I remember a, a bunch of bands, especially like in 2008, 2009, I had a bunch of people looking at my show because my name became popular because I recorded a band called Ponto Nulo no Céu. They were super popular in Brazil, in the underground world. Of course, they were they were not in the TV or on the on the radio. Of course, you know, but they were super popular, and but they were like uh, some kind of new metal in Portuguese, you know, and but anyway, it was heavy music, right? It was heavy music, and right before I record them, I was still playing in bands, and I was a power metal guy, you know. I, I used to like Angra and all that stuff. So, which is, it was already a big gap between the stuff that I used to listen to and the stuff that I was working with. And after I record them, I started to get a, a bunch of calls from other bands, people who were like, we play heavy music, but they play like death metal. They play like trash metal. They different stuff. Of course, some of those bands I always, I also listen to. I'm a big Metallica fan. I love Iron Maiden, all those stuff. A lot of different genres Uh, were looking for my services and I had to do a lot of research because I could easily record a band that was like Foo Fighters rock-ish in a week. And the next week I was recording a band that wanted to sound like Sleepknot. So, and that was really, really important for me, you know, to, to grow and to learn, you know. You know, it's interesting that you're saying this because... Sometimes with Nail the Mix students, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again because we're talking about it, and I hope that Nail the Mix subscribers are listening to this, but sometimes we'll have people who will not like the band that we have on that month and just won't mix it. And uh, I think that that's the stupidest, narrow-minded, dumb decision. Yeah. Any opportunity you have to learn about how something is done, especially something is done well, You should take that opportunity because you don't know what you're going to encounter in the real world. And in the real world, you have to be able to work with what you're given to work with. Yes. First of all, they are losing the opportunity to, to learn. And second of all, this, this job, as I said before, it's amazing. I love my job, but it's all about sacrifices because something that you have to learn, at least for me, that's a rule that I... I have for me, it's like, it's not about doing only what I want. So when they say, ah, I'm not going to mix this band because that's not my style, you never know when the only job you have that month or it's going to be a band that wants to work with you and it's not your style, you know? As I said, as we said before, like, I know a lot of well-succeed producer musicians that they had to work with a certain band because that was the only job that he had for that period of his life, you know. You are not depreciating your work when you do that, you know. You are learning, you know. Imagine that there was a lot of bands that worked with me and they were like, we know that you were the metal guy, 
but we want something a little bit different because you are the closest we can have, you know. I worked really hard and I listened a lot to the references and I made it work, you know. And after that, it was one of the most important albums I ever did, you know, because I was like, man, that's me not being me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's me because I did it, you know. So it's... Uh, it is you. It's, it's still me, you know. So, and, and you learn a lot, you know, like mixing, for example, when you record a, a ska band, you know, like that has trumpets like trombones and stuff like that it's amazing you know like i was not used to do that and i had to do it and it's still in the end i was like well now i know how to do it if i have to do if i have a metal band that has some trumpets in the middle of the song i know how to do it you know which does happen which does happen now especially nowadays where we have like all kinds of mixtures in the music if there is a ska band on the urm like in the nail the mix if the guy doesn't do it because man I'm all about like grindcore and stuff like that. You are, you are losing the opportunity to learn, you know. It's going to be uh, an amazing experience for you, you know. You should. <laughs> yeah, I remember we had Country on one month a few years ago and some of the death metal guys freaked out. They freaked <laughs> out. I knew that they were going to not be happy about it, but I didn't realize how bad they would freak out. Wow. <laughs> then a lot of them felt like assholes because uh, they actually had a really good time doing it. Look, I don't like country music at all. Uh-huh. I actually kind of hate it, even though I had a really good time with the mixer. He's Billy Decker, is a great guy, but uh, I don't like that kind of music. I don't like listening to it. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and so for me, it was tough to just you know, just have it on and have to hear it a million times. So I get it. I get it. If a metalhead doesn't want to work on it, I understand. You should do it anyways. Yeah, you have to do it, man. It's like... Yeah. It's a, it's a, every time... That's what I think, you know, like every time... I still remember... Now I'm going to sound emotional, really emotional, but it's true, you know. It's like... I still remember when I was in my city, Criciúma, south of Brazil, super small city, like countryside, totally countryside. Uh, and... The only thing that I wanted for my life was to be able to wake up every day and make music, work with music, you know. So, so far, that's still my goal, you know. I just, I just want to keep working with music, you know. It's better than working in whatever other job, you know, because I'm able to deal every day with the stuff that I love the most, which is music, you know. In the end, it's all music, you know. Of course, I, I definitely prefer working with death metal, a bunch of blast beats, then work with country music. But anyway, if I was working <laughs> with country music, I would still be happy because it's still music, you know. <laughs> still better than a real job. Yeah, it's <laughs> a real job. I love it. <laughs> yeah, like even what I do, I don't consider a real job. I don't consider music a real job, but even though it is, uh-huh. I kind of am saying that halfway kidding. I don't know. I just, I feel like you need to kind of think about it a little bit as if it is a real job so that you will do the things that you don't want to do. Uh-huh. Because if you're in the job market, the odds of you landing, you know, your perfect ideal job at the perfect company with the perfect salary and exactly a field that you love. And uh-huh. that's super unlikely also in the real world. So if you're lucky enough to get to work on music, I mean, you might need to work on some music that's not your favorite. Yeah. That's okay. It's okay. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's part of having a job. Yeah, it's part of having a job. Like, even if you have the job of your dreams, like if you work in the company that you always always wanted, if let's suppose that you work on Netflix and you love that, like, 
maybe someday you'll not be that happy having to wake up at 8 a.m. to do something, you know, because we wake up every day different. But anyway, you should never lose sight of what is your goal, you know, and what are the most important things in your life, you know. That's what I think. You know, like every time I'm working with music, if I'm having a bad time, somehow that happens, let's say, I always think, well, it's still music. You have to be happy because it could be worse, you know. It could be working with a different thing, you know. At least a few times a year, me and uh, my partners will just start laughing that we did this with metal. It makes us laugh. It's just so cool to be able to do this. Uh, we didn't have to. We didn't have to do this with a style of music that we don't know yeah. or don't like. We got to do it with with what we do know and what we do love, and it's kind of hilarious. But uh, it's really, really cool to be able to do something in music that's real and uh even if it was in another genre i'd be okay with it maybe not everyone thinks that far ahead though they don't think of it in terms of a job they don't think of it in terms of a career they just think of it in terms of something fun and then in that case working on something that they don't like it doesn't uh, register as fun it's interesting because at the same time that I don't think that anybody wants to stop enjoying this kind of work. I think the difference between a professional and a hobbyist is that a professional, well, one of the differences is that a professional will work on stuff that they don't like yeah, and will keep on working when they're not enjoying themselves and just will do the job. It's the most important thing. That's what it's all about being a professional. It's like it has a relation with what I, what we said about consistency. You have to be there always, you know? It's like, he's going to be there. You might not always like it. Yeah, maybe he will be unhappy doing that, but he's going to be there. Why? Because he's a professional, you know? We know he will be there, you know? I like talking about those stuff, about being resilient. I think that's the word, you know, like, I like because you have to overcome always and you have to be ready and... It's not going to be only about what you want. You know, it's, it's not going to be 100% pleasure. Even though every time I see you in the studios around the world doing a, the mix, I'm always like, well, that must be the perfect job. <laughs> yeah, but you're not, you're not seeing the jet lag. <laughs> Man, I imagine, I imagine. Yeah, you're not seeing the jet lag or any of that stuff or... We just show you the cool parts. <laughs> it's all cool, but uh, but yeah, even with with uh, traveling around for Nail the Mix, people just see the part that we're showing them. They don't see the whole thing. Yeah, of course, they, they don't see the backstage, right? Yeah, they, they don't see the exhaustion. Maybe you could see it on my face back a few years ago <laughs> in some of the videos, but nobody except for the people doing it see what goes into doing it. Which is fine. We're not doing Nail the Mix to make people feel sorry for us or anything like that. <laughs> While I agree that, yes, it's the coolest fucking job. If it seems like it's always fun, maybe we're doing a good job with that because it's not always fun. But, but it, looks, it looks a lot, a lot of fun, I have to say. <laughs> the most positive way possible I'm saying that, you know. It's not, though. That's the thing. There's times where you're absolutely beyond exhausted, you know, like for instance, in October of 2019, I traveled to LA, was there for five days, traveled home for two days, traveled to Vegas, Wow! did the summit for seven days, went home for two days, went to Denmark for 
three days. Wow. Then went to New Jersey for two weeks. And then that was right there two months. And so like every single time you're starting to get comfortable and starting to adjust, you immediately leave. Like you never get comfortable anywhere, but you're we're doing really cool things. Like uh, the one in LA was, we were doing now the mix with Jens Bogren and between the buried and me, then we did the URM summit. Then we went to Denmark to do Tui Madsen with suicide silence. And then we went to New Jersey to do a course with Will Putney. So that's all stuff that, we couldn't not do. We had to do all of it. Of course. And it's all really fucking cool. But nobody is seeing how tiring, <laughs> how brutally tiring all of that is. But that's okay. That's not anybody's problem but ours. But I guess what I'm saying is, though, as cool as it seems, we still have to do stuff we don't like to do in order to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I think that these days with internet, Instagram, and all those stuff that it's nice, but not always nice. It's really uh, likely to have people who complains all the time about amazing lives, you know, like just like we see in documentaries when you see artists that they are, they have an amazing life. They, they are super successful. They're playing for a million people. You know, but you can see that in the backstage, they are not happy, you know, they're unhappy, you know, and the impression I have from you uh, with your posts and everything, I always have a super positive feeling from you. And I think it's a really good thing for the people who follows you, you know, basically what I'm saying is that like you were, uh, you were an amazing example, you know, like for people, well, Thanks. you know, because I always see you like posts, like I remember a post where you took a picture of Jens Bogren. Uh, studio, and you said it's incredible being here doing this, like saying positive things, like aware that your life it's different and you do what you love, you know. And I think it's super important to have people nowadays doing that because there are so many people that they don't realize those things, you know. Like just like we said, like uh, maybe you are not recording the band you wanted, but you are still paying your bills and being able yeah. to work with music, you know. So. I think that that's one of the things that you guys always give the very best impression and it's always a good example. It's a, being a reference for people, it's tough, you know, because I see other, sometimes I see people, some producers or people, I think like you shouldn't be saying that like publicly, you know. And that's not the, the case of you guys, you know. There are some things you should just keep inside your head. So it's a choice, right? It's a, what you put out there is a decision. You could choose to show people all the shitty parts or share all your shitty feelings, or you can choose to show them the cool parts and uh, the parts that might inspire them. And I feel like everybody has negative feelings and bad days and shitty things in their life, but we don't need more of that in the world. Like what good is it for me to post that stuff online. People already have enough of that in their own lives. What they don't have is the cool stuff I'm doing. So I'll share some of that with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who cares about my problems, right? <laughs> like they're my problems to solve, but I would feel very strange sharing that. So it's not fake. The positive stuff that we share is a decision, but it's not fake. Like that stuff is actually happening and it's actually how I feel about it. But it's a very conscious decision to show that and not show the, the shitty stuff. 
It's like editing. You guys know what you guys are doing. In the moment, for example, you guys had a country band like in Nail the Mix. It's almost like, may you not like it, but you have to do it. You know, it's so basically it's like you guys are being responsible with that. You know, like it's like we, if you want to be a professional, that's the kind of thing that it will face it, you know. So basically that's what you guys are doing. You guys are always showing people real life, I think. Well, I mean, of course there is, Moments where you guys don't show like how tired and everything, but in the end, you guys show the best parts. People are having a good time with you guys, but there is moments that where, where you guys like are like, okay, this is something that is important for your career, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, nobody's going to benefit from seeing the dumb stuff like related to coordinating a bunch of travel for like yeah. 70 people for the summit or something. Yeah, wow. <laughs> There's no reason for me to post about that. Like what would be the, what would be the point? Yeah. 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 Booking 70 plane tickets for, you know, for 70 different people coming from wow. all over the world and wow. all landing within, you know, three or four hours of each other. And it's a lot of fucking work and it's not fun, but uh, there's no reason there's nothing that anyone's going to gain from me posting about that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen in order to make things work. But that's, uh, you know, you don't show everybody the wiring behind your uh, yeah. <laughs> behind your rig. <laughs> but everybody prefer posting the post of your rack, like beautiful rack, the front. but the front, but never the, the rear, right? Unless if you just... That day tied it all up with cable ties <laughs> yeah. and all that. People will show it then. And then it's like, oh, it looks beautiful now. Yeah. Let me show it to you. Like Two hours later, it's back to normal. But almost never looks cool. <laughs> no. And it doesn't matter though. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not important. It's important to you because you need your shit to work. But it's not important to your clients and it's not important to anybody on the internet that follows you. Exactly. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. 
It's over 500 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So you said that one of the basic themes of your life is that you basically see something that you really want and then you force it into reality. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that? I think you said that in the pre-interview. I kind of do the same thing. That's why I'm curious what your take on that is. One of the things... I think, like, for example, you have to, to change the reality of your stuff. You know, for example, let, let's talk about something different from music that, that explains better. Like losing weight, for example. I just lost, like, 40 pounds. Good job. Just 40 pounds. And basically, I didn't find any ex- excuses, you know. But in the end, all you have to do is, like, you have to lose weight. I have to wake up every day and I have to see that my weight, it's going down, you know? And no matter, because sometimes I see people, oh, because I'm not eating this thing here. I'm not thinking that thing. I'm not eating, not drinking too much. All that matters in the end is the result, you know? So basically you have to work until you see the results happening, you know? And for example, I was already in the place where I was like, man, looks like I'm doing everything perfect like i listen to the mix and for me it's perfect but back in the day in 2003 2002 the bands were not happy and instead of arguing with them saying that that's a good mix i was just like okay if they're saying it's not good you have to just accept it you know and then i had to change it so i go to the computer again and i redo the whole thing until it sounds different and i until i actually see now it's closer to what they want or to the reference they gave me, you know. And that's really tough, you know, because you have... Yesterday I saw a, a Porsche in Sunset and there was a line from Porsche, from the guy, which was like, changing is difficult. Improving, it's even more difficult. That's what it's all about. Like sometimes it's always about like the Sylvester Stallone philosophy. You have to keep pushing all the time, you know, like... That's the thing, you know, and what I try to say when I said that in the previous interview is that like I, I have my goals really clear and that's another thing that makes things easier. You have to know what you want because if you don't know what you want, probably you will not find the right tools to get what you want because you don't know what you want. You know, let's suppose that you were sick and you feel bad every day, but you don't even know that you are sick. You are not going to do, uh, you will not do anything. You will probably go to the doctor and everything and, and they will run tests and everything, but you still don't know what you have. So until the day you know what you have, which means like what you want, you know, you don't, you will never find the tools to fix it, you know. So basically it's like never giving up until you get it, you know. <laughs> Once you know what you want, you figure out how to get there. And then you just don't stop until you're there. And that comes the consistency again. Sometimes I I made some really bad decisions in my life, like some really fucking bad decisions. I was like, man, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have posted that. I was like, but now it's done. It's okay. 
But because of consistency, and I had penalties for that. Like I already said bad things when I was in Brazil. I had really bad moments. And why am I here? Why, why am I still evolving and, and having a, a good time, you know? And established in LA, for example, having work here, working a lot here, it's because of, of consistency, you know? Because at least I was saying a lot of bad things. I was taking really bad decisions for my career, but I was still caring about my music and about my mixes, about the production and everything, you know? Of course... You have to study a lot about the best next step for your career, like marketing, like what to post or not to post, like how should I manage my Instagram? All those stuff are important. But in the end of the day, the most important thing is to be good, you know, it's, and to, be, to keep doing a really good job, you know, if I answer the, the question. <laughs> well, it just sounds to me like you decide on something that you want, you figure out what the most important things are that you need to do in order to get the result. And then you just go for the result and don't stop until you have it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I will only stop working hard to get something until I see the results, you know, like, of course I enjoy the process because that's life, you know. Did you enjoy the process of weight loss? Nope, not at all. Because <laughs> I think it's fucking horrible. I hated it. I still hate it. <laughs> but anyway, you know what I mean? Like, but anyway, it's all about the results, you know, like anyway, there is people that they're like, well, I found a way to eat stuff that I like and I would try that way. I try to eat this, this, and this and that. And I think it's going to work. And maybe you can try for a week. <laughs> and then it doesn't work. And then it doesn't work, of course. And then you have to go back to torturing yourself. Yeah, and then you have to go back to torturing and you have to accept it. Like, it's all about doing what is needed for the result, you know. So that's basically what I try to, to say. Because I see some people that they have talent and they just started like a year, two years ago. And they never recorded like a full album. I see that they can, they have talent. Like they're already recording. They already mixed good songs. They produce good bands. Uh, the, 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 their production sounds really nice in the end and everything. But he starts to act in the social media. One year after he starts working as a music producer, he, already, he starts acting as if he was already a big star. Andy Wallace. Andy Wallace, <laughs> you know. And I'm, a, I'm, a, and I'm a like, man, you don't have a single album. You never recorded an entire album. You don't have more than, I don't know, 400 hours of recording in a studio. How can you go out and speak as if you were a, a professional? Yet it's too soon, you know. So you have to face the reality of things and you have to go for it. I want to go back to your early days. I kind of want to know how someone in Brazil in the 90s starts to learn how to record or even finds the equipment to record with. Because uh, I know that Brazil and Mexico aren't the same place, obviously, uh -huh, but I have family in Mexico and I know... I know what it's like, uh, and I'm sure that there's a lot of similarities. And uh -huh. I remember what it was like in the 90s when I'd go there for a summer and I'd try to find anything to do with music. It was close to impossible. <laughs> so I imagine Brazil would be similar. It's kind of the same thing. You were right, you know. I, I would talk for myself, you know, like what, what I had to do. It was like I just wanted. It's crazy 
how it's gonna sound, but I just wanted to be a music producer. I still remember when I started recording, I, I was like, man, I love so much doing this thing. I have such a good feeling, such a good vibe, such a good energy when I'm recording in a band and all of that. I think that thing that pushed me to be a music producer was the documentary about the Black Album. You know? In the end, yep. Bob Rock was is my a year and a half the life of Metallica. That changed my life. You know, I was like, that's what I want to do for my life. The videos of them in the studio, the things that Bob Rock said to the band, and I always preferred the first tape because I watched it on tape, VHS, you know. I always preferred the first than the second one because the second one was when they started playing and all the shows and the tour. And the first one is on the studio. So I always, I watched like 80% more the first one than the second. So I just wanted, man. And it was really tough to get equipment and everything. One of the things that I always kept in my mind, I always... I was always like, okay, if I wanna, if I want any of my records to sound like any of those records I love, any Metallica album, any Angra, it was a really big reference for me in the beginning because Angra at the time when I started was super popular, like, and it was my favorite band at the time. What about Sepultura? Sepultura, I have to say that I started to like Sepultura later. It wasn't my my thing in the very beginning. Okay. Can you believe that? I'm not. <laughs> I'm not proud of this, but nowadays I am. I mean, you like what you like, you know? <laughs> they are amazing, man. They, they they started everything. They are the kings of the Brazilian metal. You know? They're amazing. But anyway, later on, I found them. Like, And of course, mm -hmm. it's unbelievably good. But uh, I was always like, okay, if I want to sound like those records, and I already saw pictures of those guys in the studio. If I, I, I was trying to find stuff because there was no internet, like there was no YouTube, like there was no uh, Neo the Mix, you know, like to know exactly what the guys were doing, you know. And so I was like, how am I going to know? What should I do? You know, what is a compressor? How do I deal with it? You know, and I was in the south of Brazil. I was not even in Sao Paulo because in Sao Paulo there was a recording school, like one, and I wasn't there. It was not affordable for me as well. So it was just, I was just, I was like, okay, let me go on whatever magazines and interviews that they have. Like, oh, I know he uses like Marshall, like JCM 2000 or JCM 900. Like, and I was reading a lot of guitar players magazine and I was like, okay, so they use like JCM 900 on this album. Like I, I was reading an interview with Kiko Lodero and Rafael Ptencourt and they were like, oh, we use like Mesa Boogie and JCM 2000 on the guitars. The drums are recorded with, sometimes you find stuff, you know. So basically it was possible to find what they were using and that that's cool, but not how they were using. So I was just using, okay, let me guess things here, you know. Part one, at least, is what they were using. Yeah, so I was like, okay, let me try to see some pictures of the drums. Okay, the, the drums, the mics are like this and that. Okay, let me try it. You know, that's the way I started. And to afford things, like to buy things in Brazil, it's super expensive. Just so an American can understand, it's like, it's whatever Marshall you see for, I, I don't know, $800 in the guitar center in Brazil, is going to cost 1600 that's what what it costs in Brazil, you know. Like it's it's double. So how did you find the gear in the first place? Believe it or not, it's that's not the worst part. Like we have gear in Brazil. Like it's crazy. Even in the nineties. Even in the nineties. Like I was talking. Okay. Like, I don't know why. Because Brazil, it's a uh, it's a country that is there is a lot of people, a uh, poor people, a lot. Like 
I don't know, 60% of the people, it's, I'm sorry for the numbers. I'm not in a special about that. If someone is hearing and it's from Brazil, don't get mad at me, please. <laughs> but it's like a lot of people, <laughs> a, a high percentage of the people are really poor. But the other side, like the people that are really rich, they are incredibly rich. And they buy equipment. They travel all the time to the US. So, so it's it. there. We have the equipment there, you know. So there is, it is available. But it's insanely expensive. It was always expensive. But anyway, I was always paying the price. I was like, okay, uh, if I want to stand out and make my recordings better than anyone else, and I know for sure that 5150 was the, the album, the, the, the app that it used on Machine Head and Van Halen would use it too. And a lot of those uh, classic albums were recorded with those amps. I need one. So basically, I remember that it was like, okay, I have to, to do my very best trying to have a 5150 and a Marshall because then I was cool. And then I was like, and then I need, I, I need a G12 and a V30 cabinet. So if I, if I have both, I'm covered, you know. And I worked really hard and I financed stuff. Like in Brazil, we have, we finance everything, <laughs> just so you know. People do that here too. I mean, it's for everything in Brazil. Like it's a lot more, you know. Here, of course, you can go to Guitar Center and buy an app for, I don't know. In okay, so when you say everything, what do you mean? You like finance groceries or? No, 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 no. Sorry. Let me be specific. I was really Brazilian now. No, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> for example, you are going to buy uh, cables. You can go to the music store in the city and it's going to be not that expensive. Let's say like something in dollars, like say like $80 and you finance it in four payments. I got a Facebook ad the other day for a shirt. I don't know why, <laughs> like a really ugly Sure. It was $15 and it had a financing option. <laughs> Probably it's a Brazilian company. <laughs> spread, spread over three months. I couldn't believe it. That's the thing. You know, like we have cheap stuff and that's a really, it's, it's part of our culture. And, and that's because there are some people that it's not affordable for them if they don't do, they don't do it like that. People do what they have to do. And they do it what they have to do. That's, that's true. And that's what I did. I financed a lot of stuff. And I did it. I was buying the drums. And I, I really early in my career, I was lucky enough to meet Achilles Priester. He was like a, a mentor for me. And he had a, access for equipment and he, and he was always making things easier for me to afford like drums stuff. That's how it happened, you know, but it was really difficult and it's, it's still, it's really difficult, you know. But nowadays at least plugins and digital stuff are better than the time, you know. Man, plugins are such a game changer. And I think that people take it for granted here. Yeah. Because <laughs> they don't they don't realize that they're that in a lot of the world finding gear, maybe it's not impossible, but it's a whole different story finding gear. And the fact that you can get plugins is uh It's a blast, man. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's for sure amazing. I still remember that at the time, like there was like some amp simulators and stuff, but man, nothing's Nothing sounds like nowadays, you know. We have incredible plugins. It's ridiculous what we have nowadays, you know. And I see, and I keep remembering me, like I remember me, like taking cabinets out of the cars from the bands, like helping them, like because otherwise, if you didn't have a, a Marshall or something, it wouldn't be possible to have a, an actual real, uh, a, an actual great tone, you know, in a record in 2005, 2006, you know. So basically, that's one of the things that relates with the stuff I told you that once I establish a goal, I pay the price for that, you know? 
I was in Santa Catarina, uh, in the south of Brazil. Amazing place, like it's how Brazilian Hawaii, you know, it's it's a paradise. Metal bands we have, but we it's not popular. In Sao Paulo, it's it's easier to find a show, to to go to a concert, like it's easier to find a metal community. That's the right word, you know. Santa Catarina was tough and even tougher to find equipment, you know. But I knew like, well, if those guys they use those things, that's how you do it. So I have to I have to find it. I, I need to have it, you know. Of course, I didn't have 10 amps. I only have two. I only had two, but I made it work, you know. It was better than using, you know, I don't know, whatever equipment at the time, like digital thing, you know, digital pedal or something, you know. So basically, I always go to the most difficult path. <laughs> you would basically, like a detective, kind of figure out what was going on through whatever clue you could find. Let me tell a story, a really good one. Okay, sure. I was recording in 2009 in Sao Paulo, and... We were looking for the end snip tone. Well, who didn't that? Who didn't do that in the past, right? Everybody wants the end snip. Everybody. Everybody wants the end snip tone. And there was those guys that they also wanted the band that I was working for, working with. Like they are, the name of the band is Havlin. And they even found uh, an angle amp, the Savage 60, to record. Did they find Jeff Loomis too? <laughs> that part kind of matters. Well, just a little, just a little. Not that much, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, like, but anyway, they were like super into getting tones, the end snip style. And I remember that they showed me, we, they were like, wow, we even found this interview that he did like years ago for a certain magazine. And they had pictures of the magazine. And I remember Ant Sneep with his hand on top of a cabinet. And I remember that it was like the cabinet didn't have the grill. The cabinet didn't have the cover, you know. And I was like, okay. And then I started this quest for tones, as he said, like he said in, a, in an interview, like I had my life is like a quest for tones for guitars. I started, you know, to do a big research, getting tones and everything. One day it was like, I don't know how, I don't know why my guitars doesn't sound, sound as clear as his guitars, you know. And I remember that, and then I was like, what if I try to move the grill away, just like I saw him in the picture, at that time, I'm talking about 2010, you know. If there was already YouTube information, but not as much as we have it nowadays, you know. And I remember that I was like, and, and that was it. And like, I started to, that's one of the things that I do until today. I, I don't have the grip because I like to position the mics really close to the to the speaker, you know. And that's the way I my research happened, you know, with stuff like that. And now it's different because now we have those information available. Like you can pay and just do an online course or you can even have it free, you know, on YouTube, you know. So those re the, the research was really empirical. Does that word make sense? Like it was just yeah. trying things out. I, I didn't have any access to, I wasn't like guided by any other professional it was all by myself, you know. <laughs> Trial and error, I guess, and a lot of research. Yes. How long was it before your mixes started to sound less shitty to where other <laughs> people started to respond to them? I was really fortunate because in 2008, I recorded Infallible, one of Hanger's album, and Hanger's Hanger is uh, one of Achilles' band. Okay, I recorded the album, and Achilles said we are going to mix this album with Tommy Newton uh, in Germany. I was like, 
can I go with you and see him mixing? And he was like, sure, you can go. Like, let's go together. So I went to Europe, like to, to sell. That's the name of the city. Amazing city. And I saw Tommy Newton mixing. And I don't know why, because man, I'm a lucky guy. Tommy Newton, he really liked the, the recordings and he liked me. He was selling that like, man, you were such a nice guy. He's just such a nice, such a nice guy. Maybe I was even talking to him of maybe being his assistant, but didn't happen at the time for several reasons. And he taught me a lot of his techniques, you know. He was telling me all the time. He was mixing the guitars and he was like, you know, when you record guitar next time, try to find this amp, try to use the mic in this position. And so I was there for 10 days and those 10 days just changed my life. So after, when I came back from Germany, I started to mix and record in a totally different way. And that's when I recorded, and what a coincidence, that's when I recorded that band I told you, Ponto Nulo. And they became mm -hmm. super popular in the underground world. And they, after that, I started to, it was crazy. I started to get calls from all, all places in Brazil. Like I, I remember that it was like Monday and I was getting a call from Rio de Janeiro. A guy, he was like, oh, last weekend, like, Ponto Nulo played here. And we asked, who was the guy who recorded your, your stuff? And then I got a call from Rio de Janeiro, from Porto Alegre, from Sao Paulo. And that was crazy because I think it's kind of the same here. Like, usually Americans, they travel to L.A. and to New York and some other places, of course. But L.A. is like the center like of the big studios, right? So basically everybody wants to travel to LA to record, right? We have kind of the same thing in Sao Paulo. Everybody goes to Sao Paulo to record. Like nobody goes to whatever, to any other place. Nowadays it's a little bit different. We have a bunch of good studios in Brazil, all over the place. But back in 2008, 2009, basically everybody would go to Sao Paulo to record good stuff or Rio de Janeiro. And I was having people coming from Sao Paulo to record in Santa Catarina. You know, it was, that was like, what? It was like, that's not quite right. You know, like the situation should be the opposite. And everybody should be going to Sao Paulo, you know. It's pretty amazing and mind-blowing when you get the opportunity to work with someone that shows you so much stuff that you're never the same afterwards. That's happened to me a few times. Like where just spending a few weeks with somebody suddenly I'm a lot better. Yeah, man. It's like with Tommy Newton, it was unbelievable. You know, he, I was like, man, why is this guy telling me all those stuff? You know, and was saying that just because, I don't know, you know, and I was, uh, Tommy Newton, he recorded, uh, he was the producer of the Keeper of the Seven Keys too. You know? And he also recorded and produced like Guano Wapes and he recorded at the time Gamma Ray. And I remember walking his dog with him and he was telling me stories about the keeper too, you know, the, the keeper of the seven keys too. And I was like, man, how fortunate I am. I am here walking with the guy who produced those albums and telling me stories about Michael Kiski and all those guys <laughs> recording. So that was a big life changer for me, you know, like, so, and later on I, I was still researching and every time I was in a studio in Sao Paulo, I was talking to someone and he was telling me about any technique or equipment or whatever, you know, but basically I learned with life. I, I, I never had a school. I never went to school. I never, I never had a, any mentor or anything. My main hero, 
my professor, I would say Tommy Newton, you know, he was the guy who changed my life, you know. I mean, that sounds like a mentorship, a short one, but... Yeah, really short, like it was no more than 10 days, you know. <laughs> I mean, sounds like you got all you needed in those 10 days. It was life-changing, you know. I really think that if someone wants to get really good, they need to do both of the things that you're talking about doing is A, research the shit out of things on their own, but B, try to find people who are doing the stuff that they really like uh-huh. and find a way to learn from them. Yes, that's the, the thing, you know, like I always, another guy who was really important for me was Dennis Ward, you know, because he was the guy who produced Rebirth and Temple of Shadows from Angra, you know, and those albums were like a benchmark for every Brazilian metalhead, you know. I was always researching and trying to to know how he works, you know. And I remember that then I started to work with Achilles Priester and he was telling me, I was like, man, I can't believe it. He's telling me how Dennis does his things, you know. And it was because, but of course, Achilles is not an engineer. So he knew, he was just describing, well, he used to put the microphone like this or that, you know. But he didn't know exactly what was the model of the microphone or which preamp it was running through. But anyway, it was like, okay, now I have some more information, you know, at least, you know. It was amazing as well, you know, but everything was related with like the wheel <laughs> for knowing things, you know. When you got to LA, I know that you said that you had some momentum. How long was it before you started to feel like you're in a more stable position, like not nearly as scary? Right now I'm feeling comfortable. Now I feel like every time I come back from some other place and I get in the airport, I feel like LA is my house now. You know, and that, mm-hmm. That's a feeling that I started to, uh, a year ago. To be honest, it took me, I would say four years. After four years, it's when you actually mix with the city, I would say, you know. After the third year, it was, things started to be super nice, you know, super cool. But after the four, fourth year, with the connections, jobs, and I started to have like some more stability. That's not that long. I'm an anxious guy, you know, so I want to solve things quick. You know, every time I have something, I want something, not only I want that thing really bad, but I want to do it as quick as possible. For example, Sao Paulo, it was crazy because I moved to Sao Paulo because of course I was living in Santa Catarina and then I was like, okay, I have to go to the to the capital of Brazil. To, I have to go to Sao Paulo. There is the place where things happen. And then I moved in 2011. And man, one year after I moved to Sao Paulo, I was already working with some important bands and things were happening there, you know. So basically I was in Sao Paulo for four years and eight months, you know. And this between I recorded some of the most important metal bands in Brazil, like Project 46, John Wayne, Ponto Nulo Nuncel was, was already recorded uh, them before I go there, but I, I moved to Sao Paulo. But it was fast, you know. But for me, believe it or not, four years is, was too much. I was expecting, okay, maybe two years because sometimes I've, I, I set up some goals that are later on, I realize, okay, <laughs> that would be that possible. I do that too. <laughs> Yeah, I do that too. But but I'm happy because seriously, uh, I know that four years is fast, you know, but it was only four years because I was searching all the time, like nonstop for that, you know. I, I never stopped. I never gave up. <laughs> so say that you had no career and you're starting out now, not in the U.S., but somewhere 
like Brazil or some random spot where it's a lot harder. Um, what are the first things that you do now? I always believe in in the quality of the stuff and in working hard, you know. So uh, what I would do, sometimes people ask me, hey, man, what should I do to have a career? And I always like say, start with the first step. I think that standing out is the key. Doesn't matter where you live, which country you are. You have to find a band in your city and you have to to make them sounding unbelievable. That's what I would do. I would like I would, I would look for a band and make an album that is so amazing that everybody that doesn't matter what happens, no matter where you are, everybody's going to be like, "Okay, this is amazing, you know. Have you ever heard that band that they just recorded with this guy? It sounds amazing, you know. I think that's the most important thing." Nowadays, I would add on top of that like taking care of social media, like posting a lot on Instagram and that's it, you know, but it's still, I still believe that quality is the most important thing. And it's relative too, right? If you're in high school or something in the middle of nowhere and there's three bands in your area <laughs> and you are a beginner, you make them sound as amazing as you possibly can. Hopefully more amazing than they've ever sounded so that the other two bands yeah. want to come to you <laughs> and go from there. No, but now we live in the internet era, so it's more likely for them to stand, stand out, not only their city, but maybe some other places because that's the difference from 20 years ago. It's like now we have internet, so everybody, doesn't matter where you are, someone is going to listen. It's, it's possible for someone in the other side of the world, like to listen to your stuff, you know? Yeah. So just start. Just start. That's, that's the thing. Like sometimes I see some guys, they're like, hi, hey, man, I want to, I want to study. I want to have some private lessons with you. That's something that I do sometimes because I want to learn this technique and this and this and that, because I want to be a professional. I want to be a music producer. And I was like, okay, we can have lessons and everything. But if you want to be a music producer, start working with a band like right now that's the most important thing start producing music if you want to be a music producer yes yes and that's something that sometimes people forget you know like that's crazy sometimes uh they want to be on instagram talking about their mixing techniques and how they make things sound i was like man it's you need to record bands you know your life is about making a band sounding better you know that's what is your life about you know so you have to do it like you have to start it right now and i i, I will always remember that i was recording a band in 2015 in my studio in sao paulo and i remember the guy was an incredible singer amazing singer his name is bruno and he's an amazing singer one of the best in sao paulo bruno figueiredo and he just started to, to sing for a new band. And I remember that one of his friends wasn't really happy that he was playing with that band. And in the first day of the recording, he was, he was crying. He was like totally unstable for the recording. And I was like, and we had to record it. And I was like, man, no way this guy's going to record today because he's actually, because he's, his friend, it was his cousin actually, he was a singer for John Wayne, he, who just died in the middle of the pandemic because of Corona. It was so tragic. It was horrible. 
And I remember that I was in the studio with him and he was crying. I was like, oh, because my cousin, because Fa, he, he's not approving that I am here, you know? And I was like, man, how am I going to make this guy sing today, you know? Because we have a schedule. We have to finish the singing, you know? And then I was like, and also he's going to sound horrible if he sings like this, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, t- I asked like everybody to leave the room. And I was like, guys, can you give me a moment with the guy? And I talked to Bruno. I was like, man, listen. And I started to see a lot of things for him, like to make him comfortable. And in 20 to 30 minutes, he was cool again. He was like, okay. After I talked to him, he was like motivated to do the thing. And he recorded better than ever, you know? So why am I talking all, all those things? It's because that's the kind of thing you don't learn in a school. Nobody's going to teach you that if you don't work with bands every day. There are all kinds of problems, you know? You, sometimes you record a guy who just had a, the worst fight of his life with his wife, you know? Some guy, and you have to make him perform, you know? And you will learn all those things. Like sometimes you are in the recording, you see like, man, things are not happening. This guy's not playing. He sucks today, you know? Today, it's horrible for him. And then uh, you have to start talking to the guy. Hey, man, what is happening with your life? Like, give me a tip. Tell me what is going on, you know? And then he says, ah, I just have... And sometimes you stop and talk to the guy for 40 minutes, 30 minutes, sometimes 10 minutes. And that's enough for him to start focusing again, totally on the recording, you know? And all those things are important as well, you know? The starting to, to deal with people, dealing with real people in the studio... That's the very best lesson. You will get the very best knowledge out of it, you know, I think. And you can only learn how to do it by doing it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you can't learn that on the internet. No. (laughs) It's a feeling, you know. And also it's crazy because I learned that it's not only about like being nice, because sometimes you feel that there are musicians that they need to be pushed. They won't respect you if you're too nice. Yeah. I had to be rude as well. I had to be like, hey, man, listen. And I had to talk really hard to the guy. And then things started to happen. Because there, there, we, we, you will, along this career, we will deal with all kinds of personalities, you know, different personalities. And there are people that they can't focus, for example, unless you have someone really mad in front of him saying to him like, you have to do it now, you know. Please pay attention, you know. <laughs> and some other people, if you do that, you will destroy them for a week and they will never record anything <laughs> else in their lives, you know. If you don't, if you don't leave, uh, how can I say, if you don't have this contact with people every day in the studio, you will never learn those things, you know. Yeah, I, I really actually think that if you're good with people, you'll get further than if you're super amazing and bad with people. So you can be... awesome at the music if you're great with people as opposed to 100% awesome with uh, music but 70% good with people. You won't go as far. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. It's absolutely true, man. People's people skills is the number one determining factor in how well they're going to do in studio life. Assuming that they know how to do the audio part. Uh Uh-huh. There is one thing that I used to say, like the very best thing you have in your life, it's like dealing with finding and dealing with people. And the very worst thing you have in your life, it's going to be dealing and, you know, having contact with people, you know, because someday you find a person that makes your day like amazing. And someday you find another person who makes your day like 
awful, you know. But still, you have to learn to deal with them, you know. Absolutely. It's the most important thing. Adair, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Man, uh, I have no words. I'm super happy for being here. I would like to say thanks for URM. Thanks to you, y'all. It's like, I know how important it is to be here. It's an honor being here. And thank you very much, man. I just hope that people will like it. And I just hope that I didn't make as many English mistakes I think I did. <laughs> uh, you're fine. Your English is great, actually. <laughs> thank you very much, man. And again, I uh, thank you very much for the opportunity of being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy and, of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.